Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is February the 28th, the last day of February, not probably a particularly great month in world history in 2022. And the headlines, of course, are dominated by the, the war that is going on in the Ukraine. The New York Times leads with fighting rages as sanctions hit Russia. We hope they hit them hard. Uh, the ruble is plummeting, which I guess is good news. Uh, the journal with a similar sort of story, the Ukrainian fights off Russian attacks as the leaders hold talks yesterday for uh, loyal uh, viewers and, and listeners to the show. I, I talked to the Prague-based uh, Czech economist Thomas Sedlacek, who um, is a leading critic of Russia and the invasion, leading a lot of the Czech protests. When we talked, um, he had a big sign behind him, Fuck you, uh, which uh, Thomas and a number of his uh, Prague and Czech demonstrators were waving in Wenzler Square in Prague yesterday. This idea of fuck you has become, I think, the sort of symbol in some ways of the resistance to the Russians. The Guardian ran a story. It's a big story, actually, about how Ukrainian soldiers told Russian officers, Ukrainian soldiers on an island in Ukraine told Russian officers to go fuck themselves before they died. Fortunately, they may not actually have died. They may still be alive, which is even better news. Uh, my guest today, he's not distinguished as a Ukrainian expert or a Russian expert, but he has some pretty strong feelings uh, on the Ukrainian invasion, uh, on the, not the Ukrainian invasion, the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. Uh, John Scalzi is an iconic uh, science fiction writer. Uh, prolific and iconic on Twitter and all sorts of other medium. He had a, a a very inspiring piece today on his blog called Go Fuck Yourself and the World Today. It was on his uh, whatever very, uh, blog, a very popular blog, furiously reasonable. And John writes uh, uh, about the world heard 13 Ukrainian soldiers tell a, a Russian war warship to go fuck itself. It's seen the whole of Ukraine, its president down to old ladies in the street, tell the much larger, much more belligerent Russia the same thing. Go fuck yourself may not have the same ring as remember the Alamo, but it certainly has a bluntness that fits the 21st century, an era that is clearly over decorum. Uh, I think John Scalzi is certainly over decorum. He joins me now from uh, Bradford, Ohio, which we discussed before uh, we, we went live, is the San Francisco of Ohio. John, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. And we haven't even talked about your new book, which I promise we'll come on to. But this, sure. Go Fuck Yourself, I, I loved your blog, John. Uh, do you think it somehow captures the new spirit of our age of, of early 2022? <laughs> I really think it does. I mean, I think we're at the point where political messaging has been so uh, revamped and redone because of the online world um, that subtlety really just doesn't work the way that it used to. Uh, and quite honestly, if you're in a situation where you're staring down 
a Russian warship as the uh, soldiers, Ukrainian soldiers on uh, Snake Island were, um, you know, they're not going to extemporaneously come out with this great speech. They're not necessarily trained in rhetoric. So uh, what's the go-to there? The go-to is, by the way, go fuck yourself. And everybody can relate to that. Everybody has said that or wished they could say that uh, to someone who is causing them pain or frustration or anger. Uh, and in many ways, it was exactly the right thing to say to this overwhelming, you know, uh, this warship, this thing that had guns trained on them, and all they had was themselves. You know, what else can you do but defiance in that particular case? So yeah, I think it actually works very well for our age. There's a whole lot of defiance going on. Well, there's certainly a whole lot of defiance going on on social media, a lot of critics of social media these days. You're a prolific uh, user of Twitter, John. You've done, you've written almost 182,000 tweets. You even have a sheet in which you explain how to engage on Twitter. Are you, mm -hmm. uh, are you an optimist or a pessimist when it comes to social media? Do you think that the fuck you moment in world history would have arrived without social media? I think that social media is like anything that's new that we have to incorporate into our thinking. Um, I'll give you an example. I am 52 years old. Uh, I belong to the Gen X generation, and we pride ourselves on our sarcasm and our irony and all that sort of stuff. And yet, um, when the trolls started to come out in social media, uh, both the ones that were just you know freelancers and the ones that became state actor trolls and so on and so forth, um, we had a hard time with them at first because we were used to people um, presenting as who they were and making arguments uh, in good faith and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and so to have these people who were just coming in to be the bad actors um, kind of threw us and older folks for a loop. Whereas my daughter, who is now 23, she grew up with social media. She understands how social media works, right? Because she's been on it since she was, you know, eight years old. So as far as she goes, whenever she's confronted with trolls or bad actors, she doesn't get upset. She doesn't get outraged. She just goes, yeah, mute. And, and she's done. The generation below ours, you know, the, the Gen X, the, you know, young millennials, um, they will be inoculated to some of the horrible things that uh, the older generation just wasn't able to deal with because the medium has its own rules, just like previous media had their own rules. And if you grow up knowing the rules, um, then you know how to use it and how to manipulate it and how to tell what is useful information and what's not. My sense, John, is that science fiction writers, leading science fiction writers like yourself, tend to be a little bit more pessimistic about tech. I had uh, Neil Stevenson on the show. Of course, he sure. invented the term metaverse. He's a, mm -hmm. he's a rather dark man, I thought. Uh, <laughs> even uh, less dark figures like my old friend Bruce Sterling. He, he's been on the show several times. He was back sure. on when we were a TechCrunch show in 2011 talking about how network society, the very society he kind of helped invent, isn't compatible mm -hmm. with democracy. Where are you on the optimism, pessimism scale when it comes to technology in the world? I mean, the thing about technology that frustrates me and which will make it sound like uh, pessimism is 
that whenever technology comes out, the people who are promoting it always give the uh, optimist version of it. Like everything is going to be perfect. Everyone's going to use this thing. It's going to bring the world together and all that sort of stuff. And my reaction has, to that has always been, were you never 10 years old, right? The, you know, the thing of finding the ways to break the technology, to make it do things it wasn't designed or supposed to do that are detrimental. When I was at the turn of the century, I was a video game reviewer. And part of my gig as a video game reviewer was I was playing them as like a 10-year-old boy would so that parents could find out what sort of things uh, were in the game that they would need to be aware of. Um, and when a child plays a game, they're not worried about the rules. They want to find how they can break it. And once you can break it and once you can exploit it and once you can manipulate it in ways that it's supposed to be used, that's how you get viruses. That's how you get bots. That's how you get trolls. That's how you get all that sort of stuff. I'm not a pessimist about technology, but I think what I would say is you have to be a realist. You have to understand that whatever you designed the use case for technology to be, whether it's social media, whether it's you know uh, webcams, whether whatever it is, um, there is going to be someone who is going to absolutely break the use case because they are just curious, because they figure there's a good way to con somebody out of something, or because they think they can manipulate you and get something that they want out of it. If you don't understand that everything can be exploited, broken, and used in different ways than you intended, um, then you are going to be continually surprised and disappointed and ultimately pessimistic about it. If you understand that going in, then you can build up uh, a robust sort of response to it so that your technology can still do what it's meant to do without being swamped as social media has, for example, um, by all these bad actors. So I'm uh, I'm vaguely optimistic, but I'm I'm more realistic. Yeah, you don't sound that vaguely optimistic. You're sort of, <laughs> you're cheerfully pessimistic, John, which I think uh, is 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 a good reflection of of a real humanist. We are going to get to the book, I promise, the Kaiju sure. Preservation Society, which is kind of a bio-science fiction, I guess, in some ways, although you'll get an opportunity to talk about it. But I briefly want to talk, go back to um, Stevenson's Metaverse. Uh, I was, sure. uh, I was uh, in Los Angeles the weekend, spent some time with a friend with a, tenure, with a 12 or 13-year-old son. We were talking to the boys about their obsession with virtual reality sure. um and of course they're much more interested in uh the, the facebook devices than they are i think in talking to us i was talking to my old friend nick carr i'm sure you're familiar with his work mm -hmm. and he wrote a piece about mark zuckerberg saying that um reality wants to break mark zuckerberg or the world wants to break mark zuckerberg so mark zuckerberg wants to break the world in his embrace of the metaverse and virtual reality. Are you worried about virtual reality taking over? Are you part of that community that sees the replacement of quote unquote real reality with, 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 with fake reality, with the virtual world? Or is that something that doesn't bother you too much? I mean, I don't think that it's a question of whether it gets replaced. I mean, you still need to eat, you still need to drink, you still need to see other humans, you'll still need to do various bodily functions, you you will always be rooted 
in uh, the real world um, until unless we can actually do full mind implants into you know the metaverse or whatever you want to call it. The you know and the other thing is is that also quite frankly um, that what is understood as the real world um, is a moving target, right? Um, you know, the whole thing of social media is now the real world, right? It used to be the online world, but now it is the real world. We get so much of our news from it. We have so much of our communication through it. We have so much, uh, of the world happening in it. We, the, you know, they are calling, uh, the, the Russian, uh, Ukrainian conflict right now, they're calling it the TikTok war, right? Um, and that is no longer a thing that is removed from our daily life experience. It's not another world. It is this world. What Zuckerberg is trying to do and what other people who are getting very excited about the metaverse or the web 3.0 or whatever are trying to do um, is they're trying to stake a claim in what they think is going to be the next technological metaphor that we are going to use to eventually incorporate into our overall reality. And in and certainly in the case of Meta's, uh, the company's case, um, they are trying to force it as hard as they can and as fast as they can um, because they have a, they think they have a pretty good understanding that the metaphor of social media is peaking in some significant way. Uh, and there has to be somewhere else that they're going to go uh, if they want to continue to dominate um, that conversation in the way that they have over the last decade. Do you fear, are you fearing Zuckerberg? Should we be worried about what he's trying to do with virtual reality? I'm not uh, afraid of Zuckerberg and in terms of what he is interested in doing with uh, virtual reality. I think the the real issue with Zuckerberg uh, is the fact that his uh, company has been very, very good uh, at monopoly and uh, and other uh, anti-competitive practices over the years. That has nothing to do with the metaverse except as a mechanism for monopolization, right? That's part of the reason that they want to be in the metaverse because they want to stake as much uh, claim to as much of it um, as they can before anybody else can come in uh, and, uh, you know, be a competitor. So the issue, if you're talking about the virtual world versus the real world, the virtual world uh, is the stalking horse for what the real world concerns of Zuckerberg is, is how are my rev revenue streams going to be impacted by what's going on and how can I plan my next step so that I can continue to be a billionaire, my shareholders can continue to do well, and I can continue to dominate um, this sector of technology. So it's about money. It's always about money, except maybe when it comes to John Scalzi, his new book, The Kaiju Preservation <laughs> Society, is just that. He's an incredibly prolific uh, writer. This is the first uh, standalone since his Interdependency trilogy. But uh, I mean, your bibliography, um, you know, I try to be a writer as well, uh, John, mm -hmm. but nothing compared to you. And this is all on top of the 180,000 tweets. How are you so productive? Do you ever sleep? I do sleep, although not today. I was—I just actually flew in from uh, uh, L.A., so I'm on one hour of sleep right now. But the thing that is, I was trained as a journalist, and when you're trained as a journalist, you have to hit your deadlines. Uh, and if you don't hit your deadlines, uh, the copy editors come over and strangle you. So you get used to writing multiple stories 
They all have to be in at 3 p.m. to make, you know, uh, the, you know, the uh, morning edition. And you just get used to writing fast and try to be as coherent as possible. When I started writing novels, um, that discipline certainly helped. So that's why I can get as much, uh, you know, in. So yes, I write all those tweets. I've been writing that blog that you were talking about for 23 years now. Um, and then- Whatever. Yes, whatever. And and of course we have, this is the 16th or 17th novel I've, I've kind of- Maybe lost. you should uh, rename it Fuck You. <laughs> well the yeah, book uh the book john the kaiju preservation society as i said it's it's out in the middle of march but everyone can order it now and promote it i want to take a break in a moment but very briefly john what's the book about how, how would you describe it the way i describe it is it is about uh friendship and explosions and very very large creatures and interestingly enough uh, Sounds to me like a film uh, we've all seen, uh, Jurassic Park. Is it another version of that? In, it, I certainly make reference to Jurassic Park because if I didn't, people would be like, hey, you know, this is like Jurassic Park, don't you know? And I'm like, yes, yes, it is very much so. It's got some dinosaurs in it, but it's a serious book as well, isn't it? Well, it touches on a lot of serious topics, including some of the ones that we just discussed right now about technology and how uh, people deal with it and uh, whether or not uh, their good intentions can uh, survive somebody trying to manipulate a situation. Publishers Weekly called it refreshingly earnest, and they meant <laughs> that in a good way. You don't seem to be refreshingly earnest, John, are you? How would you describe yourself? I would not describe myself as refreshingly earnest, but I can get worked up. And when I get worked up, my cynical and snarky side tends to go away. So well, maybe hopefully we can do that with you uh, without wishing to annoy you. We're going to take a break. And then afterwards, we're going to talk about uh, John Scalzi's new book, uh, The Kaiju Preservation Society. We're going to talk about it not just as... Um, a refreshingly earnest adventure, but as a serious discussion of uh, the kind of technology that might actually wipe us out. So we'll be back in about 60 seconds with John, with the great prolific science fiction writer, John Scalzi. Don't go away, anyone. See you in a minute. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub 
live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Kino. We are back with the great John Scalzi, the author of the Kaiju Preservation Society, a refreshingly earnest author from Ohio, <laughs> uh, the San Francisco, as we joked earlier, of, of Ohio. I'm not sure uh, whether people in Bradford, John, will be insulted by that, but uh, I know you've got your San Francisco poster there. We were talking earlier, we, we spent the first half of the show talking about how technology, in, in, in all seriousness, is perhaps destroying everything. John doesn't believe that, but he also acknowledged that his new book, The Kaiju Preservation Society, um, does touch on some very serious issues. So John, perhaps you might, in all seriousness, talk about the kinds of issues that you wanted to bring up in this book uh, to get people to think seriously about the value and role of big tech and tech companies in this 21st century world. I know you wrote it during COVID and has mm -hmm. lots of COVID references too. Yes, absolutely. And one of the things I, I like to t tell people is, you know, I couldn't make it any less of a metaphor that you have these, you know, large creatures that we all have to deal with uh, in Kaiju uh, being written during, during the COVID-19 uh, crisis. One of the things that I think is interesting about it, and when we're talking about the technology, uh, is that um, there's this group, it's called the, Kai, the Kaiju Preservation Society. It is basically a non-governmental organization that exists to care for and look after these super large Godzilla-like creatures that live on an alternate earth um, who could use a little bit of human intervention to uh, get through their day. But the thing about the Kaiju is Kaiju uh, are, they're huge. They are um, a, a creature that people would be interested in for their own ends. What would happen if I could just get some genetics out of the Kaiju and use that and exploit that? What could happen if I just bring one back to, you know, original earth? Certainly there would be no problems with that. And so one of the things that the Kaiju Preservation Society does is not only do they keep the Kaiju running um, and living, but they also keep other people from predating on them. The, you know, there's the joke in the book where, uh, they ask who is truly the monster, the kaiju or the humans, uh, and someone says, "Well, you know, that's always the question that they ask in the movies." And the response is, "Yes, they always do ask it. Isn't it funny how it actually applies every single time it's asked?" John, uh, earlier, it's funny coincidence. Earlier this morning, I, I did an interview with a very different kind of writer, Jackie Higgins, a British. Sure. Uh, a British writer, she has a new book out, Sentient, How Animals Illuminate the Wonders of Our Human Senses. In a funny way, you, you know, she says we can learn much about ourselves from animals. You're invented animals in the Kaiju Preservation Society. Are they designed to get us to think more seriously about ourselves? 
I think they can make us think more seriously about ourselves, not only in the sense of what our relationship is to these creatures, um, but also those creatures' relationships with us and how we deal with that. Like, for example, the kaiju in these in these books, um, they literally just don't care about the humans at all, right? They are 150 meter tall creatures. They wander through their day just doing what they do. We are the equivalent to mice that are running around their feet. But what we see uh, with them is what we do in relation to them has an impact on their lives. Um, and for example, the bad things that we do or the thoughtless things that we do or the scheming things that we do can have a genuine impact on, on who they are. And in that way, um, they are a sounding board to what sort of uh, creatures we are. Uh, and I think that that's really important. You know, the thing is that there has never been, with the exception of mosquitoes, uh, really a more rapacious uh, creature than humans. We have killed so many creatures that are larger than us from the mastodons, you know, th through to almost uh, causing the blue whales to be extinct just because we decided that, you know, they had something that we wanted. We wanted their meat. We wanted their oil. We wanted, you know, some shiny part of some animal somewhere. Uh, and we thoughtlessly just plow right through them. And you would think that these squishy creatures that are barely six feet tall wouldn't stand a chance against a mastodon or a blue whale. And yet here we are, um, you know, crushing everything in front of us. And it is something, again, every time we interact with these creatures, fictional or real or otherwise, um, it is a statement on who we are as a species, who we are as a people, who we are as thinking individuals. And it's not always a great thing to go back to your question about being a pessimist or an optimist. Humans are really bad at uh, animal husbandry. Yeah, John, they are, as, as you've suggested, we've wiped out many thousands of species and we continue to, maybe there's none going to be left. But an equally chilling thing, which of course is central in many ways in, in your book, in your new book, is the idea of technology which allows us to reinvent species. We had Amy Webb on the show recently. She has a new book out about synthetic biology. Uh, later in, in March, I've got um, John Markov, the New York Times journalist, who has a new book out about Stuart Brand, one of my San Francisco neighbors, who is a big pioneer of the extinction. Should we be particularly fearful, John, of our power to reinvent species? Is that something that's even more chilling and scary than our ability to destroy them in the first place? I don't see it as particularly scary, but I think we go back to what we were saying before. It's not a question of what you can do and all the amazing things that will happen with it. It's a question of what happens when someone takes that same technology and exploits it or uses it in an alternate way so the you know the money shot would be uh you know we bring back the dinosaurs or we bring back the mass which is what we, which is what um and i'm sure you know stuart what stuart i'm not mm -hmm. sure how serious he is he's never entirely serious but he's also always a little bit serious that's what he seems to be suggesting with his de-extinction initiatives Sure. I mean, it's possible to bring these creatures back. Uh, but the, the real issue for me is not the bringing back the 
charismatic megafauna, right? Uh, the issue is uh, somebody engineering uh, a mosquito to give us super malaria or uh, a bacteria that uh, is resistant to, you know, medicine or, or things like that. Um, because if you can genetically engineer a uh, mastodon, you can certainly genetically engineer a paramecium, right? Um, and so that would be the, the real issue of not even bringing back extinct creatures, but manufacturing basically new ones whole cloth. If you do bring back uh, old creatures, then you bring them back into a world that's not necessarily prepared for them right where where are we going to put the mastodon where are we going to put you know the dodo if the dodo returns uh how are they going to live in this world if we brought back the dinosaurs we're bringing them back to an earth where the level of uh oxygen in the atmosphere is much lower than it was when they survived you know when they were around so basically we'd bring them back and they would be like gasping for breath the whole time and which is not a good thing for them I like the the kaiju reference, uh, of course, in the narrative. What, why did you choose that? The kaiju is, of course, Japanese for strange beast, and it's a genre of films and television. Sure. Um, is this central? Was this central in your your vision of the book? Yeah, it was. I mean, the thing about uh, the Kaiju Preservation Society is, uh, when I write books, I often write them with like big, obvious hooks. Right. I want people to be able to get them from the title alone. Uh, and so I believe we're at a point where if even if most people are not necessarily familiar with the word Kaiju, they're familiar with the concept of Godzilla and Mothra and Ghidorah and all of these things, because we've just had those a very successful run of monster movies uh, that have been out. There was Pacific Rim. Everybody watched Godzilla, you know, on TV when they were growing up. So everybody gets that concept. And when I'm writing science fiction, I, as a science fiction writer, want to make it easy for people who are not necessarily completely up to speed in science fiction to come in and enjoy it. And so I, you know, the idea of taking these creatures that uh, everybody knows and understands, the kaiju, uh, and using them as a metaphor uh, for things that are happening in the world right now uh, and making it an entertaining romp while I do it, that's just, that's what I do. That's my job. That's what, you know, why Tor publishes my books in the first place. Tor publishes uh, the Kaiju Preservation Society. They, they like you, are, are innovators. The book isn't out until the middle of next month, but you have some, some, some unusual ways of publicizing the book and of encouraging your fans and readers to help yep. you uh, develop the project. What, what's the strategy, John, on the book? Well, one of the things that we're doing, because we've tried it before and it, it worked smashingly, is that the first five chapters are available for people to read um, if they go to their favorite online uh, ebook retailer, um, they will find uh, the Kaiju Preservation Society first five chapters free to download, free to look at. And it's great because basically you have uh, enough that you can go, all right, I'm all in or nope, this is absolutely not a thing. Yeah, I, I, saw, would, I, I, I read that the, the publisher's request, this title is being sold without digital rights management software, DRM. Yeah. Does that mean that basically if you want to steal it, you can? Absolutely. If people, if people decide that they want to put it up on 
uh, Pirate Bay, they absolutely can. However, my under my general feeling about that has been um, most people get that if they don't buy it, uh, then I then my cats starve, and they don't want my cats to starve. You have to be honest with people, right? You just have to say, look, you know, we live in a capitalist society. Uh, I need to eat. Uh, everybody has put in work. Uh, so please, you know, honor that. If you can't do that, if you can't afford the book, but you want to read it, my suggestion has always been go to your public library because your public library will let you read it for free, but it's still advantageous to us. Now, if you absolutely positively must pirate it, what I say to people is, you know, several things. One is, you know, if you ever get to a point where you can pay for it, great, go ahead and do that. Give it away as a gift to a friend or just buy a child a book. It doesn't matter which book it is. It doesn't have to be mine, but carry forward the belief in literacy. If you do any of those three things, I will be happy. And you're going on the road with the book, John. You're doing an epic tour post-COVID. Have you been out of your home since COVID? Is this the first time you're, you're really going back on the road? It is the first time I'm going back on a tour, absolutely. I've done a couple of science fiction conventions, and those were really canary in a coal mine situations where you were like, can we do this again? Um, and the good news is all these conventions were like, you have to be you have to be vaxxed or you have to have a COVID thing. You have to be wearing a mask all the time uh, in the public spaces. Um, and so I've gone to conventions ranging from 250 people to 40,000 people. But as long as everybody's following the rules and understands what the rules are, they've worked perfectly well. So I have a very strong belief that we can do the tour uh, and that it can work and, and that people can come and see uh, me on tour and enjoy it. Yeah, yeah everywhere from Richmond and Boston, Chapel Hill. I'm guessing you have a pretty intimate and special relationship with your readers, do you? <laughs> it's really enjoyable for me to go and do these things. I mean, when I tour, what I actually do is rather than read from the book that I'm promoting, I will read from the upcoming book. So I will read something that nobody uh, gets unless they see me on tour. I'll read something funny. Um, Someone will bring a ukulele and they'll make me play it because I play very poorly and they want to see me humiliate myself. Um, it's all good fun. Well, certainly if you want to see John on the road, he's everywhere. Are you coming out west, John? Um, I will be coming out west. We haven't announced where I will be and when, but that uh, announcement is coming soon. Well, I'm excited uh, to, to see you in the real San Francisco from uh, perhaps, well, maybe we're not in the real. We're in... <laughs> Bradford is Ohio is the real San Francisco. We're in the the invented San Francisco. Uh, the the new book Kaiju Preservation Society is out in the middle of the month. The free chapters are available. I think anyone who can't afford to buy the book, John, I don't know what their problem is because I can't imagine it's very expensive, is it? No, it's you know very cheap, good entertainment for value well, for the money. Uh, don't steal it. Buy it. Make sure John's cat can 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 live. Uh, John, what else should people be reading in um, on February the 28th, 2022? What other books would you suggest? There are three books that I've been really recommending to people recently. The first is uh, The Actual Star, which is by Monica Byrne. Uh, there's Light from Uncommon Stars by uh, Raiko Aoki. Um, and then Goliath by Tochi Onabeuchi. Now, they're all science fiction. But they're all vastly different science fiction, and they're sort of really show the the width and depth of the field right now. It's an amazing time to be writing science fiction and to be reading science fiction. It is, and I, I know this is a bit of a 
a cliche, but it's not science fiction anymore, is it? I mean, you it's are very, the realists. I don't yeah, know what the, everyone else is. The, the, the funny thing is, is there's a lot of things that I've written that the real world catches up to them and they're like, how did you know? And I was like, I didn't know. I guessed, but I'm a pretty good guesser sometimes. Well, you've been doing a lot of guessing, and I think this book uh, is full of interesting, um, suggestive guesswork, the Kaiju Preservation Society, about our invention and reinvention of other species and what we're supposed to do about it morally. Classic Scalzi. John, congratulations on the new book. Thank Finally, you. Finally, John Scalzi, the author of the Kaiju Preservation Society. John, who's in charge? Who runs the world? We run the world, or we should, and we should remember that we have the right to do 